big hold back here today, yes. but it looks like we're going to have two hot drinks. <laughs> so it's all yeah. right. I just, we realized when Allie was making the first drink, we both have orange hot sauce, <laughs> herby based drinks. What a weird, what a weird time thing to happen <laughs> like we rarely ever do that i think we've only had hot sauce and like two other drinks in all 150 I some know. odd episodes and i know now two in one night <laughs> it'll be interesting i'm sorry to all of our listeners that make these i know <laughs> my goodness but i love hot sauce so it's okay yeah some people don't like hot sauce really that's crazy. No, I think I made that up. That's everybody crazy. likes hot Everybody <laughs> likes it and everybody loves cilantro. Two well. facts about life. <laughs> Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> um, but we're not here to talk about toppings that you can get at Chipotle. <laughs> no, we're here to talk about herstory. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. (laughs) And we are not historians. Absolutely not. No. Uh, But we do like to Google. We like to go on Wikipedia (laughs) to watch YouTube. (laughs) And I think at this point, with all of the Google Docs that I've written put back to back, I've written like an encyclopedia on women's history. Absolutely. So you could put... Amateur historian. Amateur historian. <laughs> <laughs> Professional drinkers. So I'm so excited to get started. Yes, me too. But you're busy putting hot sauce on your own food. Yeah, your own burrito. And, you know, it's messy. You have to use both hands to hold one of those giant mm. burritos because Absolutely. it's just going to spill out. Um, so you got your headphones in. You're at Chipotle. Trying to eat your burrito. So you don't want to put that burrito down and get, you know, stuff all over your phone uh, when you want to look up what these women look like. (laughs) So we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, what does your person look like? And I'm going to try and guess who it is. (laughs) Okay. So although right now she's alive and her hair is short and white, it was at one time long and luscious, wavy, curly, and black. This woman is extraordinarily beautiful and at one time was described as the Puerto Rican Elizabeth Taylor. She has a thin nose, big eyes, a sweet smile, and long arching eyebrows. While she's certainly recognizable in a number of outfits, her most telling one is in a form-fitting cap sleeve pink dress with a T-length fluffy, like, purple tulle skirt underneath of it, singing in the streets of New <gasps> oh, York City. You're doing Rita Moreno? I'm doing Rita Moreno. <laughs> that is so perfect. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes, this has been such fun. The research oh, has been such fun. What a gem. What a gem of a person. We talked about doing Rita Back when we did Carmen Sandiego. Yes. In like season one mm-hmm. or two. So yeah. she has been on the list for so long. And I was like, I'm just doing it. I'm oh going to break out and my do it. gosh. And also Peg Bain, mom, watched like this thing on the news at the end of 2021 and was like, you guys have to. My mom, who doesn't <laughs> listen to this show, recommended a woman. Wow. <laughs> so she was like, you guys have to do Rita Moreno and like cut an article out of the newspaper for me. Perfect. Like, Thanks, mom. It's like what we did with Virginia Hall. Exactly. Except that <laughs> was mom. your parents. Yeah. Okay, so who are you doing? And I bet I can't guess her because you picked crazy people. I do. (laughs) Um, So my lady, (laughs) 
<laughs> was apparently rather tall for a woman of her day. Uh, she was a white, affluent woman in the turn of the century. <laughs> In London, very different from Rita Moreno. Yes, very different. Uh, she had a long oval face, a slightly upturned nose, rounded cheeks, and kind of hollow-looking eyes. Uh, her hair is always up and away from her face, and she is quite often pictured with some small creatures. Um, you might not recognize her from her physical description, uh, but you might recognize her from her most famous character, he is quite recognizable with his blue coat, brass buttons, and long ears. <laughs> Beatrix Potter, the author of Peter oh, Rabbit. Of course! <laughs> I was like, blue coat and long ears. <laughs> yes, I'm doing Beatrix Potter tonight. That's a gr- This is going to be such a mashup. <laughs> Weird episode. <laughs> Beatrix Potter is such a person. Yes, yes. I fell in love with her years ago. <laughs> and then, but then I was like really nervous because I was like going through the research and I was like, I think this is interesting. Are other people going to find Beatrix <laughs> Potter as interesting yeah. as I do? I think okay. they will. I think they will. She's very okay. interesting. Yeah, she is. Okay, perfect. But do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. What is it? <laughs> this is called She's E Got It. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Oh, Katie, that's so clever. <laughs> very <laughs> clever. Okay. It is an ounce of vodka, half an ounce of lime juice, half an ounce of lemon juice, squirts of sriracha, <laughs> some cilantro, and then you top it all off with Sprite in a champagne flute <laughs> and a long sprig of cilantro. Cheers. Cheers. Mmm. Mmm. It's it, good. It, it is. It tastes like something and i can't put my finger on it it's spicy it's definitely spicy i like a lot and i took um i looked online for like rita morano cocktail or moreno cocktails and there were so many of them mm-hmm. um and they all had very similar ingredients though so this is like a mish mishmash yeah but i do like it and i think the like the sprite on the end like actually really finishes it it, does. it doesn't taste like Sprite at all. It's just like nice and bubbly, bubbly. but because it's not champagne, it's like still very light. You yeah, know? it's not like sweet and heavy, like syrupy. Yeah, no, it's not. It's delicious. I love this. Oh, <laughs> I would drink this at brunch. <laughs> this is my take on a Bloody Mary. Ah, well, we're going to have another one later. Can't wait. So be prepared. <laughs> and maybe eventually we'll do the actual Bloody Mary. Yes. <laughs> We've both been like waiting on doing that drink for us to actually cover her. I know. And that's why I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do a Bloody Mary, but I'm going to do it twist on one right because i love a bloody mary yeah they're very good (laughs) okay so tell me what you know about rita moreno okay so i know that she was in west side story she played anita obviously she was so good um i know that she has an egot um but really i don't know her from much else besides west side story so i'm excited to learn what else she did um and then i know a few years ago she the dress she won her Oscar for, um, for West Side Story, she wore again to the Oscars, and it was amazing. Um, but yeah, other than that, I really don't know much about her. I did so much learning this week, and <laughs> I really did enjoy it because she does have a documentary on Netflix that you can watch mm-hmm. that just came out last year. So it's not an old documentary. Yeah. I watched a couple short YouTube videos, tons of interviews with her because mm-hmm. we, when we have the added benefit of the woman still being alive, 
Yeah. It's really nice to hear them talk about their own life. Yeah. She's also written a memoir. She's mm-hmm. quoted all the time. Perfect. Her Wikipedia, not that meaty. I yeah. would say go to the documentaries first. Okay. That's it's, good to know. The documentary is only an hour and a half, and most of us have Netflix. So. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Rosa Dolores Alvero was born in Puerto Rico on December 31st, 1931, to mother Rosa Maria, a seamstress, and father Francisco Jose, a farmer. Right off the bat, I'm just impressed that they actually cast a Puerto Rican in the role. She's the only one. Rosa- oh, no! I mean, not the only one, but everybody else was white. Like, Maria's <laughs> white. Like that, but, yeah. you know, she's actually, like, one of the few Puerto Rican people in that role in the movie, which is funny. But now fixed in the new good. West Side Story. Good, good, good. She was born in the one town in Puerto Rico that had a hospital. She and her little brother ran around barefoot all day. There was no reason to be in shoes, she said. They would go to the river, and their mom would wash their clothes, and all of the women would sing and tell stories while the children would play around and swim in the water. Now, her mother was 17 when she had Rosa, so... The parents got divorced relatively young. One source said that her dad was being unfaithful. So she's two years old. Mm -hmm. She has a 19-year-old mother, a younger brother, and now her parents are divorced Mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico. So they go to live with her grandfather, who would play records all the time and, like, dance around with her. And she just, like, was having a joyous time. Now, Rita doesn't go by Rita until Hollywood time. Okay. But I'm going to call her that for, like, simplicity. Her name was Rosa, but her friends and family called her Rosita. Okay. Because her mom's name was Rosa, but Rita is just the name she currently goes by. Yeah. I feel like that's what I did last week, you know. We know (laughs) it's Rita With the other Rita. (laughs) That's why I was like, it was so funny. When when you last week were doing Rita Hayworth, I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) What if we did them both in the same week? We were this close. Rita and Rita. (laughs) It would have been so fun. Okay. So her mom wants to go to America. She's a divorced late teens woman for a quote, better life, like Mm -hmm. the American dream scenario, Mm -hmm. because Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States, right? At this time. So it's just, it's an easy transfer to the North. Um, So the two moved to New York city when she is five years old, leaving her father and younger brother behind. Rita did not see her brother again. So, like, she didn't realize at first it was, like, permanent. It's like, she's five. I'm going on a trip with my mom. But she ends up going long term. They were aboard um, a ship that apparently when you translated the name into English, it meant stupid face. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, like, so funny that, like, we don't check for Spanish translation when we're doing shit like that. What's wrong with us? I don't know. But she says that the ship was really scary. There were storms. Everybody was seasick. Um, And just the atmosphere on the boat was vastly different from the, like, joyous time she remembered in Puerto Rico as a kid. And as they're getting to New York City, she describes coming into New York Harbor and seeing a big green lady holding an ice cream cone. (laughs) (laughs) And she thought that this woman was the president of the United (gasps) States. Oh, my God. It's adorable. That's so cute. But she also described it as the opposite of Dorothy getting to Oz. You're coming from this tropical, colorful, lovely island. 
to Manhattan in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. Like it's dark and the buildings are dark and it's gloomy and yeah. cold. So <laughs> literally we're not in Puerto Rico anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like as she comes into the city. But her mom was a seamstress. So even though they arrived with only the clothes on their back, her mom could like make clothing for her. And she yeah. called uh, Rita like her little doll and Aww. she would make her clothes. So far, it's just the movie West Side Story. Uh, <laughs> is it? I didn't know. <laughs> like perfect casting. Yeah, perfect. really. Gets more like it too. Ooh. <laughs> Their first home was in the Bronx in an apartment that they shared with 12 other immigrant families, although eventually she and her mom moved to Washington Heights. Um, The temperature wasn't the only shit they had to deal with, though, even though, like, New York winters are terrible. It was also the Great Depression and, quote, Rita's kind were taking the jobs from the New Yorkers. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of hostility towards immigrants. There is slash was a lot of segregation in the streets of New York. There's an Asian block and an Irish block and an Italian block and a Puerto Rican block. And there's gangs everywhere. And you have to be careful what part of the city you're in. So it's just kind of like dangerous. And it sucks to grow up with that type of segregation because you learn very young that you lack worth. Like I'm worthless. I don't belong here. I'm unwanted. Rita describes that internal feeling of discrimination like an illness that you carry with you for the rest of your life. So when somebody looks at you strange in the grocery store or somebody cuts you off in traffic, you think immediately, oh, it's because I'm Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. Not like, oh, that just happened or they were having a bad day or they recognize me because I'm Rita Moreno. Right, yeah. It's like, I'm Puerto Rican. They don't like me. Yeah. So... Rita's mom did eventually remarry, and Rita updated her surname to Moreno. Up to that point, it had been Alvaro. And dance ended up being the perfect spot for Rita. She loved being in the spotlight and knew from a young age she wanted to be in movies ever since the first time she saw a movie. So shortly after getting to New York, her mother enrolled her in dance classes. Her instructor happened to be the uncle of Rita Hayworth. No. Rita Hayworth's uncle taught her how to dance. Oh my God. In New York. That's so crazy. So they are literally like this Linked. far apart. Right. Oh my God. Because I mean, Rita Hayworth linked. also, that's where she learned was that dance school. Yes. And Rita Hayworth is uh, about 15 years older than mm-hmm. her. So she's already a star. Yeah. Um, when little Rita... Rita Moreno is learning (laughs) from the same dance teacher. That's so crazy. It is. So it's Rita is really good at dancing. Mm -hmm. So good at dancing that she, at the age of seven, is in like Greenwich Village nightclubs, like taking up the stage. By 11, she's being asked to lend her Spanish language voice to dub over American films (sighs) so that they can be viewed by spanish-speaking audiences that's so cool and she got a lot of notoriety from that and like talent scouts coming after her so she dropped out of high school at the age 15 because she figured out that she could survive by dancing and dubbing movies at this time too this is a fun fact she was living in valley stream which is where our friends <gasps> live hey isn't that funny <laughs> so 
She is young and pretty and energetic, and she would, as a young teenager, go down to the docks and sing to the troops as they were shipped off to war. And like I said, the talent scouts are like, this girl's great. So a guy saw her and came backstage at like one of her dances and was like, here's my card. Mr. Um, Mayor, Meyer Mayer from MGM is here in New York right Mm -hmm. now. So like come meet him at his hotel. And they're like, okay, so they're going to go tomorrow. She said that she would always dress up as best she could to look like Elizabeth Taylor. She had dark hair and pale skin, and she would just throw on a corset to make her waist really small and do her eyes up, like, with extreme makeup. So she gets to the Waldorf Historia with her mom. They had never been in a fancy hotel before. They had never used an elevator to get to a penthouse. They, like, have no idea what they're doing, how to do this. So they have to, like, ask for directions. They finally get in the elevator, go upstairs. It opens to the penthouse, and MGM head guy is like she looks like a spanish elizabeth taylor sign her (gasps) she does nothing except for walk into the room i mean that is the effect she has she is so gorgeous Mm -hmm. and i never really put the two and two together she does look like elizabeth taylor that's incredible and there's a life magazine photo of her that like you have to do a double take it looks so much like elizabeth taylor Mm. it is incredible so 1945 she's aged 13 and she makes her debut on broadway (gasps) six months later her and her mom are taking a train to hollywood they find a small house in walking distance of mgm studio because her mom can't drive she can't drive they don't know how to use a car so her first big screen appearance is in so young so bad about terrible treatment of an all-girl boarding school. In this film, she's still credited as Rosita Moreno, but soon thereafter, she took the first name Rita Mm -hmm. as per what MGM wanted her to do. But she's just like this little Hispanic girl bopping around the studios, and she's like, I was there every day on the MGM back lot waiting for work, and Mm -hmm. they'd give it to me, and I would do it, and then I'd be done, and then I'd just go all day. But roles for women especially women of color. They were treated like sex objects in Mm -hmm. most films and most television shows. They were treated like they were owned, like they were stupid, um, and just kind of like little trinkets to be on set. Yeah. And as we know from many people, one tactic of MGM trying to get their stars to be super famous was to set them up on dates and Mm -hmm. send them out in public and then when the picture would go in a magazine they would be like so and so at this party they're gonna be in this movie go see it Mm -hmm. so they say we want you to get dressed up and go to this cocktail party and smooze so she's like okay i got dressed up and she goes to the party and the host is taking her around the party and introduces her to harry cohen from Rita Hayworth's story. The monster himself. The monster himself. Oh my God. So he goes to talk to her and says to Rita Moreno, you know what? I'd like to fuck you. <gasps> she said maybe that's the third time she'd heard the word fuck in her entire life. <sighs> and she didn't know what to do. So she just giggled and like, still looks back at that and kind of cringes because like she didn't say anything. Yeah. So then the host is like, okay, okay. You know, kind of brushes him off. But then 
he starts to dance with Rita and presses himself up against her and Ugh. starts grinding on her <sighs> on the dance floor, like in front of everybody. And then he's whispering in her ear, like, you're a sexy bitch. Oh, you? my God. So she finally gets away from these people at the cocktail party. And she remembered as she's like trying to scurry out that there were a whole bunch of Mexican men that had been employed outside doing the gardening. So she rushes outside to find them and just starts crying and asks them, you know, can you take me home? Oh, my God. And she said that they were the first gentlemen she saw that afternoon. They gave her their coats and drove her home to her mom so she didn't have to be at that party anymore. Oh, my God. That's so awful. It is. It's devastating. And just the fact that this same asshole is- I know! (laughs) Rearing his hideous, ugly head. God, I hate him. He's so bad. (sighs) So she did act steadily in films in the 50s, usually small roles, including literally anything ethnic. She refers to herself as the house ethnic. Yeah. She was little Asian girls, little Native American girls, mm-hmm. Hispanic girls, like whatever they needed. Yeah. That's what she was. Well, they would just put them anywhere. Right. And also, it's like, I think we covered it also in the last episode, like when Rita Moreno looked less ethnic, then she got to play the lead, you know, ethnic parts because she was white enough to play right. the lead, you know, if the person was from a different country or whatever. It is. And it was hard because, like, Rita Moreno never really had that. She mm-hmm. never quite looked white enough to, to not look Hispanic. Yeah. So she was always playing whatever they wanted. And at that time, she thought, well, I'm an actress. I should be able to play anything. Mm-hmm. But then they would come out with this really dark makeup and almost paint her, yeah. like, blackface almost. Yeah. And it's, like, it's really icky when you watch some of them. And she totally acknowledges that. Yeah. And that's also the time in Hollywood. It's not like she had a say. No, yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, I think we've covered that a lot. Whenever we do a woman of this era, it's like, I think... They did not have a lot of choices <laughs> in this time period. Oh, yeah. They were like, you are our neighborhood ethnic actress. Yep. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were commenting on the documentary. It's like, okay, we see that you're playing the role. And this is like for a lot of Hispanic actors and actresses. Yeah. But can like you play it with like an accent? Yeah. Can you like make it a little more spicy? Ah. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> a little more spicy? Spicy. Like, oh my god. You just you're asking me to be a stereotype, not the character that I'm supposed to be playing, mm-hmm. which is rough. So Rita really hated this. She always hated it. She always had to be this naive, stupid girl who was not white, falling in love with a white man who didn't want her and left her for a beautiful white woman. Like in every movie. And It really started to hurt her feelings because she's only playing worthless characters, and she started to put that on herself. Until she got a role in Singing in the Rain. Gene Kelly specifically requested her to play that um, movie star Zelda Zanders, (gasps) who, like, walks in on the red carpet. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, and it's, it's a very small role. She's got a couple speaking lines, but she's not specifically playing anything ethnic. It's just, you're a famous, glamorous movie star, and we want you to walk in on the red carpet. Well, it must feel good because, like, (laughs) it's like, wow, is this a fantasy movie? Because a woman who looks like me would never be seen as a glamorous movie star. Exactly. that's amazing. And apparently Gene Kelly, like, 
wanted specifically her for the role. He never said, oh, she's too Latinx to play yeah. this role. He was like, no, she's good. I mm-hmm. think she'd be great at it. And she says that it was one of the best experiences Aww. of her life. And she was on set the day he sang the Singing in the Rain <gasps> song. And that it was just an amazing thing for her to see that there really are good people out there yeah um so she just spoke wonders of gene kelly which is really nice to hear because sometimes you don't know i know and then like i'm sure there's some fucked up stories about About him him as well yeah Yeah, of course but like it's really nice to hear some good stories from the old hollywood (laughs) era because a lot of times they're really shitty i know so um, Rita was so excited that she got that role. She was like, yes, I, I got the role of a person. Oh, like, oh that's sad. And then no. she thought, this is amazing. That means I'm done. I don't have to do that anymore. But Rita was very wrong um, because she had to play the roles that they would give her. And she yeah. was contracted to the studio and the thing that I think hurt her the most is when she played the roles, she wasn't only educating herself about who she was she knew that she was showing the hispanic community who they were like i'm not the role model like hispanic actress that i should be Mm -hmm. for all of these young people who are looking up to me now they all disagree strongly and if everybody like that was interviewed on this documentary america ferrera lin manuel miranda are like without her there was nobody to look up to So she was seen as very important and is seen as very important. Um, The aforementioned uh, Life magazine cover came out in 1954 where she's just looking stunning. And then she was offered a role in the famous The King and I. And the part was so boring. She's literally the uh, slave bought from Burma to be one of the king's junior wives. And has to just pine for him in the role. And she says, I just came up with one accent that I used for every character. Yeah. Just the same accent over and over again, regardless of the region of the world that it was from. Didn't matter. Um, And then she realized she was being trained for these roles for the rest of her life. And Mm. she was pretty depressed about it. She even, um, you know, she's playing in westerns and this and that and the other. But there was one specific moment that really broke her. She played an island girl named Ula, and at one point in the movie, she falls off this cliff and dies. Well, while she's acting, she's laying in the water, and there's jellyfish all around her. So she, like, keeps, like, accidentally moving because they're stinging her. And she, the director yells at her to stop moving. And she was like, I'm sorry, there's jellyfish. And he pretty much is like, shut your fucking mouth. Do the part like you're supposed to do it, blah, 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 like screaming at her. And she realized he wasn't screaming at her. He was screaming at what he saw as like a stupid islander, which made her realize that like what she was doing was not helpful for society. Speaking of the dreadful treatment of women, Rita um, had to go to her agent's apartment to have a meeting because they were getting set up for another role. She's dressed up. She had to go somewhere afterwards. She's got a packed schedule. Um, And she said, you know, he started to come up and kiss her. And then he, like, kept getting closer and closer. And then he forced himself on her. 
and pushed her up against the sofa in his apartment and put himself inside of her, <gasps> raping her. She said she was menstruating at the time and she was all dressed up and then there's <sighs> blood everywhere. So she just pushed him away and ran out. And the scariest part is that she let him continue to be her agent <gasps> because he's the only person that was helping her. And it's like, as a young 20-something woman in Hollywood, what can you do? Right. And Rita, I want to be very clear, is so outspoken. She has been during the entire Me Too movement. Yeah. She speaks openly about this and several other political issues all the time. Yeah. Throughout her documentary, they have just her as like an 80-year-old woman watching the Betty, um, Dr. Ford, Brett Kavanaugh case. Like, on TV. <laughs> She's like, oh, fuck him. <laughs> like, I was like, this is amazing um but because she really that did happen to her yeah and it's something that obviously she doesn't think anyone should have to go through but then it was so acceptable it's like how do you even speak out about it yeah but then luck's gonna change because in 1960 rita lands the role as anita in the groundbreaking broadway musical west side story at first, she was, like, excited, and then she was a little nervous about the song I Like to Be in America because it really kind of trashes Puerto Rico yeah. and Puerto Ricans. But she was like, I had to keep reminding myself this is Anita's view of Puerto Rico. This isn't all Puerto Ricans' views of Puerto Rico. Yeah. Well, and also, like, the song does balance. Like, you know, it is a competition between mm -hmm. the two. Like, you know... It's not entirely trashing Puerto Rico, right. which is nice. Like, they're kind of weighing the pros and cons. Cons of both, right? They're making a yeah. pro-cons so. list. But <laughs> she just, she felt a little uncomfortable. Yeah. But she also says she danced constantly to keep up with the other young dancers that were cast because mm -hmm. she felt not up to par with what they could do. And the thing that always got me about Rita in that part is at the end of the scene in the candy store mm -hmm. when the jets are like kind of roughing her up a little bit and getting yeah. her down on the floor and the candy store guy comes in and she kind of yells at them is when she delivers those four line that four four words that don't you touch me mm -hmm. before she slams the door and you can tell that she is speaking from experience like yeah. it is such like I get chills thinking about her delivery of that line because yeah. I can't imagine having gone through that and then having to act it yeah. like in front of a film crew. Yeah. Terrifying. Oof. So for that role, she received an Academy Award nomination and in the car on the way to the Oscars, which her dress was gorgeous. It's like a black uh, strapless kind of corsety top, um, like sweet, sweet part. Mm -hmm. Um, so cute and then like a big floral skirt that's black and gold she and her friends were practicing their losing faces they're like there's <laughs> no way this, these Hispanic people are going to win you yeah. know these Oscars so her friends told her that at home it was a hot night everybody's windows were open and if you leaned your head out the window you could hear everybody's television set had the Oscars on 
And when they said the Oscar goes to, there was a collective inhale <laughs> in the whole neighborhood. And then they said Rita Moreno, and the neighborhood erupted <laughs> with cheers. And just the community is going crazy because she won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. That's one of the big four. Yeah, that's amazing. It's a huge deal. And she said all she could think was, don't run to the stage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she also has the record for the shortest acceptance speech of all time because she didn't prepare anything oh to say. Oh, my God. Because she thought there was no chance. She yeah. just goes, I'm so excited. I, like, <laughs> walks off the stage. Um, but she was the first Hispanic woman to win an Oscar. Oh, that's amazing. After winning the Oscar, Rita thought, okay, <laughs> I'm going to be offered less stereotypical roles. Like, I, this is it. This is my key to success. But here's her quote. Before West Side Story, I was always offered the stereotypical Latina roles, the Chiquinas, the Lolitas in Westerns. I was always barefoot. It was humiliating. It was embarrassing. But I did it because there was nothing else. After West Side Story, it was pretty much the same thing. I just got offered gang stories. Oh, which is so sad. It is really upsetting. But she does have a little hunky man on the side. Before, during, and after West Side Story for seven years... She was with Marlon Brown. <gasps> oh, no. He was the hunk of Hollywood. Yeah, he and was. he loved oh. her. There are very few actors as famous as Marlon. Yeah, really. Um, and she wanted to marry him. She was obsessed with him. But he was the guy that you could never quite get. Mm. And they were just on again, off again for no. about seven years. He was attractive. He was funny and just totally ungettable and in the end pretty toxic so even though they both like really were infatuated with other each other she was like nobody is more in love with marlon than marlon (laughs) there's no no way yeah um as it turned out towards the end of their relationship rita found out that she was pregnant and she thought oh this is great he'll marry me but no he found a doctor and told her to get some cash (sighs) And then they put her to sleep and, quote, <gasps> did the deed. Oh, my God. Um, but it was a botched abortion. She bled for days <gasps> and could have died. Oh, my God. Because illegal abortions are dangerous. Oh, my God. Yeah. That, that's so fucked. It is. And on top of this, she's still getting all the roles that she hated. So she lost her man. She ended a pregnancy for this man. She's not getting any roles after winning an Oscar. So Rita went into her room and took a whole bunch of sleeping pills and attempted to take her own life. After this, she goes into some really intense therapy. To this day, she believes the only way that you can become a whole person is by taking care of yourself and by... Becoming a healthy person means going to therapy. So she left Hollywood for seven years. She didn't make one movie. She moved to London and did stage acting on the West End. Wow. Said, I'm not going back there. No movies, no Latinx characters. When she did return to New York, she was on Broadway, and her friends brought her to this dinner where she met a man named Lenny. He was a cardiac doctor (laughs) and he asked her on a date and she was like okay meet me at I don't know like 10 o'clock at this theater so he gets there at 10 o'clock 
they're supposed to go somewhere and he's waiting outside, waiting outside. It's 11 o'clock and he's like, oh my God, this woman stood me up. And she is sitting in her dressing room like, oh, my God, this guy stood me up. And then he looks at the sign. And he knew this woman's name was Rita. But then he looks at the sign and he's like, oh, and runs inside to the backstage. And is like, you are the Rita Rita Moreno? He could not believe that the woman he had met was like the actual Rita Moreno. So, of course... She falls in love with this random doctor guy, and six months later, they're married. And they were married until his death. What was interesting about Rita in the late 60s is that she really found herself. She became an activist, and this is something she would be for the rest of her life. She was at MLK's March on Washington and was sitting, like, two rows back from the front. She spoke out against atomic bomb testing. She spoke out about women's rights. She said women are not a special interest group. (laughs) She was current on issues. Senators and um, Congress people are like, oh, yeah, we have conversations with Rita. She's up on all the political news. She knows exactly what she's talking about. And at this time in Hollywood, that was strange. Like today, it's common for people in Hollywood to speak out about what they believe. And this is when she realized, I'm going to live. I'm not going to quit, and I'm not going to give up. And she was even strong enough that seven years after her and Marlon broke up, they did a movie together. Wow. Where there's, like, a pretty (laughs) abusive scene in it. I couldn't believe that she went back and did that. Yeah. She and Lenny had a baby girl, and that baby traveled with them and became one of Rita's background dancers. And as... um, her husband retired from being a doctor. He ended up like being a manager and did the lights for a lot of her shows. And he was just a wonderful and loving husband. But she does say of Lenny, he was really embarrassed of her big personality. Like she loves being just brash and bold and loud. And he's just not really into that. (laughs) So obviously she was not happy when he passed away, but It's the first time that she's been fully herself and fully able to make her own decisions in her entire life. And she also has two beautiful grandsons. Mm. Now, Rita loved Broadway. She was in a lot of Broadway shows, specifically The Ritz, where she plays (laughs) a big, bold character and won a Tony Award. And her acceptance speech was a little bit longer than the Oscars. This time, she said, Rita Moreno is thrilled but Rosa Dolores Alvero from Puerto Rico is undone. Like, this is me. I'm a normal person. She did, in this role, play a Hispanic woman and kind of a big, bold Hispanic woman, to which she said, I have no objection to playing a Hispanic. I have every objection to playing a stereotype. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most people, after major success like this, have a little downturn or, like, everything's too small for them. Mm -hmm. But she didn't take that. Nothing was too small for Rita. And, in fact, she decided to broaden her career to include children's shows. So in the 70s, she became a cast member of uh, Electric Company on PBS with Morgan Freeman, which, like, she does the, hey, you guys. Like, that's her (laughs) screaming in the beginning. Uh, And it's just so cute watching Morgan Freeman and Rita Moreno, like, on this, (laughs) like, on a kid's show together because they're both so talented. And he says nothing but, like, gold about her. Mm. He loves her. So... 
Um, they there's like a music soundtrack for this show for which she won a Grammy <laughs> because it's just so good. And while she is doing that, she's also starring in Carnal Knowledge with Jack Nicholson. So she's like on a kid's show and then on this like crazy adult movie. Wow. It's really crazy. She's all over the place. She really is. <laughs> um, but because, you know, Rita loves kids shows, she also appeared on The Muppet Show and just thought Jim Henson was a genius. <laughs> so she thought he was great. So she does this thing where she sings You Give Me Fever with like Animal playing the drums. Yes, I've seen it. It's so good. <laughs> it is so good. And she won an Emmy for that performance. <laughs> what? I didn't even know there was it it's an a, Emmy. It's a primetime Emmy award for outstanding individual performance in a variety or music program. <laughs> and if you're counting, that's our EGOT. Oh, my God. I was wondering. I was like, what the hell are these other awards for? Exactly. So she gets this EGOT, and she was the only the third person ever. Really? To have an EGOT. So it was after Richard Rogers and Helen Hayes. She is to date the only Hispanic person that has as an EGOT. Um, and there's only 16 right now. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't actually, I was reading up a lot about it and I was watching this thing where Whoopi Goldberg was talking about it and she was like, it wasn't really a thing back then. We just did what was there. Right. And we got awards. Now people are specifically trying to tailor what jobs they get to yeah. getting the EGOT. And then one, I think Wikipedia is like, it became more famous after Tracy Morgan on 30. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. That did not make it more famous. Everybody no. knew what an EGOT was. <laughs> Everybody okay. knew it was Whoopi. <laughs> and then if you think this primetime Emmy was bogus, she won another Emmy the next year for um, her appearance on The Rockford Files. In the 80s and 90s, she starred in so many things, including the four seasons with Carol Burnett, who we love. I just like to name all of the alumni mm -hmm. of the show. She also was a regular on 9 to 5. She was on The Love Boat, The Cosby Show, George Lopez, The Golden Girls, and Miami Vice. Mm. And she was asked to perform at the inauguration of Bill Clinton. Hmm. As uh, one of my personal heroes, she provided the voice for Carmen Sandiego in Fox's <laughs> animated series, Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego? And then in 2019, she reprised her role in the Netflix series where she is Cookie Booker, who's the mysterious villain woman in red that the current Carmen Sandiego looks up to. Aww. She was also in an HBO series called Oz, where she played this badass nun working in a jail which this <laughs> role is incredible. In the 2000s, early 2000s, she released an album of nightclub songs. She was in The Glass Menagerie. She had a recurring role in Law and Order. She played Fran Drescher's mom in Happily Divorced. <laughs> she, Love that. <laughs> I know. She was on The Nanny at one point, too. I didn't even bring that <sighs> up. She had a role in The Nanny. She had a small voice role in Rio. She wrote her autobiography um, or her memoir, Rita Moreno. She then had this, like, uh, solo show called Rita Moreno Life Without Makeup. She is like a kooky grandmother on this Netflix sitcom <laughs> called One Day at a Time. And of course, she is currently in the new West Side Story, but she is playing the candy shop owner instead of a man. It's a woman named Valentina. And Obviously, she's very connected with Lin-Manuel Miranda, who had her take part in a Hispanic um, disaster relief fund after mm -hmm. the hurricane in Puerto Rico. So 
in August 2001, oh, I even forgot this. She does like part of Wicked in Concert where she performs on PBS, The Wizard and I, which mm. is like one of my favorite songs. That's one of the best ones. Exactly. That's so good. Besides an EGOT, she has a Golden Globe, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. President Bush gave her a Presidential Medal of Freedom. President Obama gave her a National Medal of the Arts. And she has a Peabody Center Achievement Award. The Hispanic Organization of Latin Actresses named an award in her honor. Her documentary that came out in 2021 that I mentioned is called Rita Moreno, just a girl who decided to go for it. And she said, you never can really believe anything about your fame and all that bullshit. It goes up. It goes down. Right now, mine's up. (laughs) (laughs) And when some people look at her, they see a woman who grew up from a colonialist island background coming into stardom through the American dream. But what we should really look at is a woman who rose from this difficult journey of being in Hollywood in the golden era, being a woman in the 50s and 60s, and being a woman of color in the United States. In the words of Rita, you always have to be able to get up, dust yourself off, and move on. And that's the story of Rita Moreno. I love it. Isn't that amazing? She is so good and so talented, and it, it makes me so angry that, like, even after she literally wins an Oscar, they're not taking her seriously. It, right. In, it's infuriating. It is. And I love that she was just like, fine, fuck yeah. Hollywood, and just yeah. left. And just left. I'm just going to take a decade off. It's fine. <laughs> Let me tell you, sometimes you really do have to take a break. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I cannot suggest more, like, this documentary on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It. It's a lot of similar anecdotes that I told. I had other stuff from other sources, but being able to see her say it and her daughter say it and other really famous and influential like actors and actresses of color, it's like a really, really nice documentary where you learn a lot. Well, and documentaries like that are cool because you are actually seeing the people who were affected, you know, because like sometimes it's easy to say like, and people were inspired by her. Mm-hmm. And then, like, to actually see, like, America Forever be like, yes, like, when I saw Rita Moreno in a movie, like, it was amazing. Yeah, like, and, like, some of the other, like, short YouTube things that mm-hmm. I watched, like, people like Jennifer Lopez are on yeah. stage. Like, without her, yeah, I, di- I never looked at a TV screen and saw people like me, yeah. which I can't imagine as no. a child yeah. because that's all I had was yeah. people like me. Mm-hmm. So she was just incredible, and we've been waiting to do her for so long. <sighs> And yes. finding out that she is this amazing women's rights, civil rights, like, activist on top of it all. Perfect. I was just, like, <laughs> wonderful. Love you, Cell. Well, I'm so ready for my next hot sauce drink. <laughs> all right. We're going to get the pickle juice. We're going to get the hot sauce. And we'll be back with more women. Oh, can't <laughs> wait. We're back with part two, another orange cocktail. <laughs> Pretty identical, Drake. Beyond funny. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Um, it, yeah, that's really fucking funny. I can't um, believe we both used hot sauce. I know. How bizarre. So weird. Um, How bizarre? How bizarre. <laughs> uh, well, do you want to get into our second orange drink of the week? I really do. What is it made of? <gasps> okay, so it is called Trixie's Bunny Mary. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, so cute. I'm... 
We have great names tonight, too. Yes, we do. Both punny names. <laughs> Very good. Um, I do want to, uh, you know, give credit to Liquor.com because this is the Bunny Mary from Liquor.com. I tweaked it a little bit, um, but it is an ounce of Aquavit, an ounce of ginger liqueur, carrot juice, lemon juice, hot sauce, honey, pickle brine, and you shake that all up and you pour it into a glass rimmed with Old Bay or salt and paprika, whatever you have around. Um, I love an Old Mary with a Bloody Mary with Old Bay. So we're from Maryland. <laughs> I know. So and then you have to put like something green on it. Like I did thyme, um, but you can use anything. So cheers. You can smell the pickle right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. It is. It is interesting. <laughs> it's good. I like it. It's. I mean, people. Mm. Miss and Mr. Krista. <laughs> You're going to have a tough time this week. <laughs> Sorry. Mm. Wow. Have some white rice with our drinks. <laughs> yeah. I do. Um, I like the carrot juice, though. I it's, agree. It's a little less punchy I than didn't like a regular Bloody Mary. Yeah. Um, but I also, I wanted to make sure that it was, because it called for caper brine, but I want to do pickle brine. And number one, I love pickles, so I always have them. <laughs> and number two, um, I wanted to make sure there were ginger and pickles in there because that's one of her lesser known books is like the tale of ginger and pickles. <laughs> that's dumb. So <laughs> it's very it. Beatrix Potter. And of course, if you put something green in the top, it looks like a carrot. It's very, very cute. It um, is. It's adorable. <laughs> and it's orange. So fun. And uh, yeah. And also... You should really rim it with Old Bay if you can because it's delightful. Yeah. Uh, so what do you know about Beatrix Potter? So I know she wrote Peter Rabbit. Um, I think only because of posting on Instagram that she was born uh, the same day that, like, Jane Eyre was published. Oh, Not the same year, but mm-hmm. the same day. Yeah. Um, I know that she is British and Beatrix Potter is very British. Yeah. The most British person. It's unbelievably British. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that her rabbit keeps getting caught <laughs> in a farmer's in a garden. Mr. McGregor's <laughs> garden, like a little scamp. <laughs> Why are you being so naughty? Um, I have a little teapot with the whole uh, scene mm-hmm, <laughs> on mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know anything about Beatrix Potter's life. Okay. Perfect. Well, this is going to be exciting because I am such a huge fan of her as a person. Mm. And I think it'll be clear why, like, you know, near the end. Um, but, okay. So, I... Is my, she more of, like, an Agatha Christie or more of, like, a Queen Elizabeth or, like, <laughs> more of a Helena Bottom Carter? I, I don't even know. What she, type of British is she? <laughs> I, she? She's more like a Mr. McGregor. Just okay. Like, okay. Not, not as crotchety. Get off my lawn. No, not as crotchety. Um... <laughs> But, yeah, I don't even know what to fucking make of her. She's just, I don't know. She, I guess Great. she's more of a um, uh, Carol, uh, Carol King. <laughs> <laughs> you can't use my driveway. <laughs> okay. So, oh, my sources are the History Chicks. They did a great episode on her. Um, I watched a timeline documentary, which was narrated by a woman who, like, played Beatrix Potter in a play, and they became, like, obsessed with her. Stop it. Um, And, of course, Wikipedia. (laughs) Helen Beatrix Potter. And I love that her name is Beatrix. It's not Beatrice. It is Beatrix with an X. Let's be clear on that. Okay, so wait. You say 
her name, and I'm going to say Helena Bottom Carter at the same time. Okay. Ready? One, two, three. Helena, Helena Beatrix Bottom. Potter. <laughs> <laughs> They're the same. That's the same person. She's That's the same person. Uh, she was born on January 28th, my dad's birthday, wow, which like is in two, two days. days. <laughs> 1866 in London. She was the eldest of two children born to Rupert William Potter and Helen Leach. The family was pretty well off. Both parents had inherited a considerable amount of money from their families, separate cotton industries. <laughs> um, but I want to make it clear, they were both second generation wealth. Like their parents each created an empire and then they grew up very wealthy and privileged. So they're very much like classic second generation wealth. Um so she speaks really slowly and drinks tea. Uh-huh. Got it. Uh, her father, Rupert, went on to become a lawyer or a barrister and a stock market investor where he did very well for himself. Um, of course, probably wouldn't have done as well without his dad's money. Um, and apparently the lawyer stuff was like a bit for show. Uh, apparently, like Beatrix is like, yeah, he got like an actual case assigned to him one time. And he goes, oh, God, no. Like he was really upset. <laughs> Because that's not what I'm here to do. <laughs> um, he was so wealthy that he just didn't really have to practice law. He was just a um, show pony. Yeah, just a little show pony <laughs> at that. the club. Um, so the Potters were living a life of leisure. Rupert enjoyed the hunt among many other pastimes outside. Oh and Mother Helen kept herself busy with embroidery. <laughs> But more importantly, actually, I just want to mention this because Helen is going to be a total bitch later. Mm. But she worked on translating books to Braille, which was a thing that, like, they just kind of gave to society women to do because they didn't have anything else to do. And they're like, here, make these books Braille. Shit. Which is a great Give me that service job. to society. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Isn't um, it interesting? Okay. Never mind. <laughs> But another thing that set Beatrix's parents apart was that they were really artistic. Um, Helen was an incredible painter, and Rupert also enjoyed painting, but he was more into photography, which was in its very early stage at this time, so it was quite a hobby. So we do have a lot of pictures of Beatrix when she was young, which is rare for a lot of these people of this time period. Um, so with her parents kind of focused on other things and their, again, life of leisure, <laughs> uh, Beatrix and her younger brother Bertram, um, just kind of were sent on their own, <laughs> but Beatrix's brother, he was sent to boarding school at seven at the age of seven. And of course Beatrix wasn't at school. So then she was just kind of alone for a lot of her youth what happened um, to the name bertram i don't know it should make a comeback bert is that what bert's nickname for yeah bert and ernie mm. bertram and Erntrum. got it <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> so she spent a lot of time alone but not really alone because she kept a variety of small pets mm. uh in her nursery uh, mice, rabbits, a hedgehog, and some bats, along with a collection of butterflies and <gasps> other insects. I just, that nursery must have been an absolute nightmare. Well, they had made so it's fun. Um, she was just endlessly fascinated with nature and animals and all things outdoorsy, which is why her favorite place in the world was the family's country house in Scotland. Um, it was their summer house. They would spend like, you know, months at a time there and her and Bertram would just go on these scavenger hunts outdoors and spend all day outside. Their parents just did not give a fuck. Um, 
And this is when they would kind of find all these animals and bring them in. And then if they had a dead one, they would skin it and boil it and rearticulate the skeleton for fun. <laughs> oh, this is so Boy scout uh, I feel like. Yeah. If, <laughs> let me be clear too. If Beatrix Potter was a young boy in the 70s, like if she was Jeffrey Dahmer, we'd be like, caught it from the start she would she was definitely a serial killer from when she was like a child yeah, but she wasn't like murdering the animals no she wasn't murdering them um but she was also if she became like a, a famous doctor we would have been like yeah yeah she, she totally knew in. it yeah she totally understood <laughs> skeletons that's all you have to do is take pictures of your kid doing a whole bunch of shit mm-hmm. so that whenever they do whatever they do you can be like, like I, knew I, knew I knew it i knew it i knew it that was it <laughs> her from the start <laughs> Uh, but they would not only buy, like, you know, not buy, like some, some of the animals, they did get some from pet shops. Um, but they would bring them in and they would spend a lot of time sketching them. Um, and her early sketches are incredible and they only got better when they got their hands on a magnifying glass and she would like put the magnifying glass up and draw these like very detailed pictures of like caterpillars and insects and like they look like professional botanical drawings and she's like eight years old <laughs> I love that. um and Wait, did she draw peter rabbit yeah i didn't know that oh yeah she's the illustrator oh oh yeah we'll get into it that changes um, the story and then also just for fun they would research the little animals that they would find and write papers on them for each other <laughs> Oh my god how so much fun (laughs) this is the most british ever well to be clear this is the most fun that's ever been had in scotland Um, (laughs) just kidding i don't know anything about scotland i don't know why i'm dissing it i'm sorry um but when she was stuck in the house in london which she wasn't overly fond of um she was a a voracious reader she was always interested in learning new things uh, especially when it came to science uh but specifically botany she kind of hated astronomy. Um, sorry, Dr. Misty. <laughs> she like specifically said that she just was not interested in it. Um, but even She's though- She's very McGonagall, not Trelawney. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> She's more of a Professor Sprout. Um, <laughs> She's definitely a Hufflepuff. That's yeah. for sure. She loves a badger. Professor Sprout was dating um, Madame Hooch, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Click, click those clams together. <laughs> So even Even though she had this thirst for knowledge, she was supposed to be a society lady when she grew up. So they didn't educate her like her brother. You know, she didn't get to go to school. She had governesses, which she actually didn't mind. She was the type of kid who I believe today would have thrived in a homeschool situation. She just knew from an early age that she liked being on her own and she knew that she was a little different (laughs) and she was really creative. And like, she apparently once said like, Oh God, thank God I didn't go to school. I might've lost all this creativity. (laughs) Honestly and truly. Yeah. Especially since this is like factory era. Oh yeah. That's what schools were built for to train kids to work in factories. Exactly. Sit in rows, do your work, get the fuck out of here. And don't complain. Um, but (laughs) her first governess, Mrs. Hammond taught her how to speak German, which she was fluent in. Um, and she also inspired 
Beatrix's imagination. She would tell her a lot of fun stories and folk tales and things like that. And she was also one of the first people to spot her artistic abilities. She would look at these detailed sketches she would do of like bugs and bats and whatever. And she told the parents, she was like, I think you should get her like a formal art teacher. She has a lot of potential. And they liked this idea. It sounded really fancy, you know, and procedures. <laughs> so Beatrix started taking art lessons. Um, but again, it's like she had this art teacher, but art at this time was very formal. It was very like, this is exactly how you draw. Oh. And she was like, mm, you know, I kind of felt like my natural whimsy was being stifled. <laughs> I mean, she said it was a good thing. She's like, I definitely learned some technique and I, you know, did learn some valuable things. But she's like, overall, I just kind of kept drawing the way I always had. (laughs) They were trying to, like, squeeze the dolly out of her. Exactly. Um, And she also did discover at this time that of all the painting styles, she really preferred watercolors. And that became her main medium, which, like, we totally see in the Peter Rabbit books. Oh, it's like such pastel. Yeah. mm -hmm. Um. When she was 14, she began to keep a diary, but since this is Beatrix, it wasn't just any diary. She developed a code for it, <laughs> so it would be indecipherable if anyone tried to read it. Oh, because 14-year-olds have so many secrets mm-hmm. to keep. So many secrets. <laughs> um, and really, she was, she was literally just like writing about, like, this is my review of a Shakespeare play that I read. <laughs> I was like, why did you have to hide this? I was like, I think Othello is overrated. <laughs> I mean, the first. That's- something you should hide in yeah England. you can't say shit like that <laughs> um so it was a simple letter for symbol substitution but she was so fluent in her own code that it wasn't cracked until 1958 and even when the code breaker like figured it out it still took him 13 years to translate her journals you know who that's like that's like tolkien Oh, really? I don't know anything about him. He wrote the elfish language that they use in Lord of the Rings before he wrote Lord of the Rings. He was like, I'm going to write an elfish language. And then he wrote the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So there's a whole book series about including the language that he wrote. This is very, they, they may have been Their friends. brains work in different ways than <laughs> I mine. I understand how you make up a language and then you're like, maybe I'll invent an entire fictional world that I, uses this language. Oh my God, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I wonder um, what year that is. And I also wonder what year Dr. Doolittle came out. I don't know. Because she's so animalistic. Oh, I, she is. I love that. Mm-hmm. And that's a very British book. Very British. <sighs> Um, so it was becoming clear that Beatrix was extremely bright. In fact, her second governess quit because she went to her parents. She goes, look, there's nothing more I can teach her. She is smarter than me and she has outgrown me. (laughs) She's like, I kind of like feel like dumb around her. Like I... I need to quit. Love the honesty, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but she's still a young lady, so she can't just be, like, without a governess. <laughs> so they got her a new one when she was, like, 16. Um, her, her, she was a young woman named Annie Moore. Now, there were a lot of great things about Annie, but one of the best things is that she was only three years older than Beatrix. So she was 19 when she, Beatrix was 16. Oh, so they're buddies. They were more friends than teacher-student. Oh, that's nice. Um, and she was a really great friend to have because while Beatrix had been relatively solitary and confined her whole life, Annie had gone to school and she had traveled the world, and now she was like a young working woman. She basically opened up this new idea of what a woman could be and also, like, what a friend could be because 
it doesn't seem like Beatrix had that many friends besides like her little animal friends and like her brother and before her fr- he went to school. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I have a summertime friend, my brother and my all time friends, my animals. But that was basically it. Uh, the two remained great friends even after Annie had left two years later to marry. Oh. Um, and thankfully, now Beatrix was 18 and officially too old to have a governess. <laughs> um, she was probably too old quite a while ago, but here we are. Um, so now that she's out of governess age, um, but didn't seem to be too interested in marriage, what was a girl to do? And there couldn't have been a better time for her to meet a man named Hardwick Ronsley. He was an avid naturalist who was blown away by Beatrix's talent for botanical drawing. So I don't, I think he was just kind of like around the town in like Scotland where they would hang out. Um, I can't remember if he or another guy was like, just like the postman and they became friends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he asked her if she would be interested in doing a small project. He was like, you know, I have some people that are interested in producing some Christmas cards. Like you're a really good artist. Would you be interested in this? And she was really excited, but she had to keep it on the down low because her parents were not going to be super keen on the idea of her working in any way so she made these gorgeous cards they're very adorable very beatrix potter they're just little animals in little clothing like in the rain with tiny umbrellas they're (laughs) so cute um and she had to have her brother bertram like sneak them out (laughs) and sell them to the people uh and she got six pounds for them her very own money that's so cute. It's very cute. Um, and as a young woman living with her parents, there was something so freeing about having her own money. So she kept doing it. She illustrated a book of poetry and did some other small projects. Nothing that was overly exciting, but it was getting her art out there and it was making her money. And she was doing something. <laughs> so she does this for nearly a decade, a decade, just small projects to get her by until she finally starts working on a project that seemed to have been boiling just under the surface for a long time. A book about mushrooms. <laughs> for many years, she had become obsessed with fungi and she was so good at drawing them that people across England, other naturalists would mail her mushrooms for her to sketch to send back to them. Stop. Katie, this is really upsetting to me. I don't I want this to be my I... life. I'm, th- I'm not comfortable with any of this. The mushroom thing, that throws me for a loop. I know, especially because you're like, great, she's finally going to write Peter Rabbit. But nope. And I mean, <laughs> I, I know I keep bringing up other books because it's like <laughs> Dr. Doolittle and Tolkien. But like that is like part of the end of the third Hunger Games book. That's like how Peta and Katniss get their lives back together is like she's like, I can identify all these plants and you can draw them. I forgot about that part. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Like it's, yeah. a, it's a really weird thing that. I mean, she is an author, and other authors apparently are drawing from her. Yeah. No, exactly. And so she's doing this mushroom thing, and her mentor was a famous naturalist named Charlie McIntosh. Maybe he was the postman <laughs> and a famous naturalist. Um, but he loved her drawings. McIntosh, her... that's the Apple name. <laughs> exactly. Um, but he loved her drawings and her attention to detail and how she made these things that people might consider ugly into beautiful works of art. 
And she wasn't just drawing them. She was back to her old shit, researching them and doing her own experiments on them. No, experimentation. Experimentations on them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just to see what else could be learned from these incredible little things. And she's writing papers on how molds and fungi can be reproduced via spores in the air. And also how they could potentially be helpful to medicine and science. She was writing about penicillin 50 years before it existed. That's absurd. She didn't invent penicillin. I want to be clear. But she was literally writing about how, like, I think that molds could be useful to medicine. And I think that this thing could help prevent, like, infections. And she was right. You heard it here first. Beatrice Beatrice Potter Potter. invented penicillin. Yeah. But mostly she's finding out that the current books on fungi are incorrect. <laughs> so she starts writing her own papers, as I was saying, and she's like, I'm going to correct the narrative on mushrooms. <laughs> I, that breaks me. I can't. Like, <laughs> on mushrooms. So, the narrative on mushrooms. She's like, I love, she's like, I'm a fun guy. I have something to say. <laughs> I'm and a she, fun gal. <laughs> I'm a fun gal. I have something to say. And she does the next logical step, and she takes her work to her uncle, who was a chemist. And she's like, I want to be in science. Here's my work. And he's like, wow, this is actually really good, and you're making a lot of sense here, lady. Um, So he goes, you know where we need to take this? Kew Gardens. Apparently spelled K-E-W. I wanted to make that clear because I just wrote a Q in my notes. But it is spelled K-E-W. They're like the National Botanical Gardens of England or whatever. Oh, is that like a thing? I guess. (laughs) So they take it there because he's like, this is where the botanical research goes. I feel like this is the beginning of every movie where a woman tries to present her research and they're like... (laughs) That's exactly what happens. (laughs) When they receive her papers, they are so offended that a female amateur scientist would waste their time and they sent back a rejection letter that was so brutal her uncle wouldn't even let her read it damn (laughs) but they were both determined so they decided like we're like maybe if like someone else presents her paper at this like lecture hall it could get some attention (laughs) um because also, frankly, she literally wasn't just allowed into the building. It was called, like, Linear Hall or something like that. She literally wasn't allowed in because she was a woman. Um, so this guy takes her paper. He presents it. And people are like, uh, I mean, I guess that's cool. But, you know, you don't have a degree. And you're a woman. And... Uh, my no friends. thanks no thank you it's the same thing they said to jane goodall i know like a hundred years later seriously Ugh. and this thing that she had worked so hard on just kind of got like a faint clap and was tossed aside and she's like okay uh it's just a big disappointment and you know she finally thought she had found something to do with her life and then it kind of fell apart uh, I would like to say that Kew Gardens officially apologized to Ms. Beatrix Potter and acknowledged that her research was correct and important in 1997. Um, oh! <laughs> but she did find some joy during this time, visiting with her old friend Annie Moore, who would go on to have eight children, but at this time had about four or five. Poor thing. Poor thing. Poor thing. <laughs> Thank goodness she traveled. Um, (laughs) she was doing. She was like, I need a break. Yep. Um, and (laughs) 
Beatrix would just spend time with Annie's kids. She would tell them stories like her first governess would do for her. And when she couldn't be with them in person, she would write them letters with little stories in them. Um, And she would include illustrations in her letters, which the kids just loved. And in September of 1893, while she was on holiday in Scotland, she got word that poor Noel, Annie's oldest child, was sick. She starts off with the letter by saying, I'm not really sure what to talk about, so I'll tell you a story. Which, like, (laughs) I feel like that's how a lot of conversations with kids go. Like, I'm not sure what to say to you, so I'll say this. Um, and is, this was a story about a little rabbit named Peter, inspired by her actual pet rabbit named Peter, and his little sibling rabbits, Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail. But this was just a silly letter, and it remained that for the next three years. During the time she was doing lady stuff, taking care of her parents as they were aging, and of course, telling stories to children and other people. Um, but her friend, Annie Moore kept telling her, she was like, you know, you're really good at telling stories. You should think about publishing them. And Annie told her, I think the one about Peter Rabbit has real potential to be a children's book. So Beatrix politely borrowed the letter back from Noel and she polished up the story a bit, um, and kind of fleshed out the characters and like made it into a full tale. And she made a dummy book which is basically like a bunch of papers she put together and it has her drawings and, you know, some, the writing kind of all like pasted in there. She's like, this is what it would look like if it was a real book, but I'm just making it all by hand. And these still exist today in a museum. They're incredible. Um, but she has this product and she tells her old friend, Hardwick Ronsley, she's like, you know, I have this thing. Like, do you have anyone who'd be interested? And he was like, yeah, I have some publisher friends. He goes, let me send it out to them. See what they think. Here's my mock-up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they send it out to all these publishers. But similar to the Mushroom Book, no one is interested in them. They are like, no one likes this bunny tail. And they're calling it that. They call it the bunny tail. Like, no one is interested in this. It's not going anywhere. She's like, okay, you know what? If you don't want it, I'm going to publish it myself. And she used her own money to publish this book and Peter Rabbit hopped onto the pages of a real book for the first time in 1901 with the first 250 copies of the tale of Peter Rabbit that Beatrix paid to, to, to make. It was a tiny little book about four by five inches with new original illustrations on each page. She gave a few copies away to friends and families and then asked a few bookstores if they would carry them. And they said, yes, And to her surprise, the book sold out really quickly. And people are sharing this book with their friends. They're like, you have to read this. Your kids will love it. Even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got his hands on this book, and he couldn't recommend it to people enough. He fucking loves everything. He does love everything. He loves a fairy. (laughs) (laughs) He loves a bunny. And he loves whimsy and mystery. (laughs) He's really into anything, honestly. (laughs) But okay, good for her. Yeah, good for her. She got Sir Arthur Conan Doyle on on her trail, on her bunny trail. (laughs) Exactly. So the little bit of hype, good old Ronsley (laughs) sent the finished version that she self-published back to the publishing house who sent her the most polite rejection letter the first time. It was a company called Frederick Warren and Company. And he basically said, hey, 
here's it in real form. Like, what about now? Don't you see the potential here? And they definitely saw it now, and they offered to publish her book. So this was a small family-owned company. Uh, Frederick Warren was the dad, and his three sons, Harold, Fruing, and Norman. Get them out. Get them out. We're running the company now. The other sons thought that this book could only go so far, so they sent the youngest brother, Norman, to deal with Miss Potter. (laughs) Deal with her. (sighs) There was a little bit of scuffle in the beginning, um, mainly over whether or not to have the illustrations in the book be colored. Beatrix was really insistent on them staying black and white line drawings because she didn't want the book to be too expensive. She said this book should be read by every child who wants to read it. So I refuse to price children out of it. That's a lot for a rich girl to say. Uh, yes. Yes, it is. She, you wouldn't also, think that she has that in her brain. I wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't think that she would have any knowledge of what, poor kids are doing right like she grew up with all the books she wanted exactly expensive but you wouldn't expect her to know that yeah exactly good for her um but they did they eventually agreed to add color and you know frankly i'm glad they did because those beautiful watercolor paintings and peter rabbit just oh my god they get cemented in your mind i mean it's literally my childhood tea set yeah it has peter rabbit watercolor exactly across the sides and it's also really rare even now to have the same person who wrote the book illustrating it that's just not how it happens happens. uh it's just really cool um but it wasn't just about colors she and norman spent a lot of time going over the details and compromising on things beatrix didn't just want to send this thing off she wanted to be a part of the entire process she wanted to say in the color of the jacket the binding even the type of paper and ink they would use and in 1902 the tale of peter rabbit was officially published for wide distribution. Mm. So while all this is going on, and while she is in the process of writing, or like, you know, getting this other book published, she is writing another one, The Tailor of Gloucester, inspired yet again by um, an old fairy tale um, and a letter she had written to Noel's sister, Frida. She was like, well, this book is cute, you know, and it might be published. She was, you know, but... (laughs) They're already publishing one book for me. I can't ask them to publish a second book when this one is like just getting out. I mean, you really can though. But you can. Yeah. She didn't want to bother them with a second book. So she self-published again. (laughs) The Taylor Gloucester. (laughs) And when they found out, they're like, Beatrix, what the fuck? Just ask us to publish it and we will. Because by the time they found out that she had self-published this book, Peter Rabbit is flying off the shelves. Like, she is a hot commodity. And they're like, God damn it, why didn't you tell us? (laughs) We have it. We have space. Yeah. The Little Bunny book was constantly sold out of bookstores across England. In the first year or two, about 50,000 books had been sold. This is, like, kind of a new market. Like, children's literature was not the thing that we think of it today like this was a very untapped market um so the little bunny book is very successful so in 1903 they published the tale of gloucester and they also published the tale of squirrel nutkin both were very successful beatrix truly had her own money and her own career now she was thrilled her parents 
didn't like it so much, though. Unlike the Christmas card, she couldn't really keep this secret. (laughs) They thought it was very unseemly for her to have a job and to be going into this dirty office full of men all the time. So they made her have a chaperone every time she went to the office. And she's, like, in her late 30s. That's so annoying. It's so irritating. (laughs) But whatever. She's successful. And Beatrix even started to get fan mail from children. She called them her little friends. And she just, (laughs) she loved getting these letters. Uh, Again, her parents hated it. They're like, why are all these dirty letters from poor children coming into here? Like, I don't like this. They thought it was really annoying. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. But the letters made Beatrix so happy. And the one thing they all had in common was that they wanted another Peter Rabbit book. So in 1904, she published The Tale of Benjamin Bunny. And the children went wild. Like Benjamin Button? Mm -hmm. But Benjamin Bunny? Why not? Benjamin Brass Buttons. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) Beatrix started to have another inkling of an idea. Actually, back in 1903. She thought maybe children would like to have their own Peter Rabbit to read and play with. So she made and patented the Peter Rabbit doll. And this was truly a new phenomenon. Merchandise. There was no merchandise linked to a pop culture thing before this. That's so cool. It's so cool. And it didn't stop there. She was like, let's put that fucking bunny on everything. Get me some merch. They made China tea sets, which is why we all have weird memories of them as children. <laughs> I, I mean, I have You one. have it. We should have shared the cocktail in that. Oh my God. Yeah, my um. grandmother's very British and, and very much bought us all Peter Rabbit, the Peter Rabbit China, China set. China it, set. You it's a one. thing. It's iconic. She also made coloring books for kids. She made board games, figurines, bedding, puzzles, clothing, baby blankets, wallpaper. She basically created the idea of the themed nursery. A merch. Merch nursery. Isn't that <laughs> insane? I had no idea. Yeah. She pioneered that. She was like, let's make stuff. For the shit that kids like so their parents will buy it. It makes sense. I probably, if you had asked me, would have pegged that on, like, Pooh Bear. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Also very, like, British. But this is making a lot of sense of why in my life I can picture her watercolor images so clearly because it it oversold. Yeah. Like, it's everywhere. And it always stayed, like... With her vision and her Mm. artwork, which I also think is something people don't realize is that like, I didn't know the whole Peter Rabbit thing is all Beatrix. Very cool. Which I think is really neat. You know, like you can have different kind of versions of Pooh Bear and still be like, yeah, that's Pooh Bear. But Mm. if someone else kind of draws like a bunny in a blue jacket, you don't immediately go to Peter Rabbit. No. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Pooh Bear with a red shirt. That's a Disney. You Uh can't take it. Oh, yeah. Naked Pooh Bear. Naked Pooh. <laughs> free to the public. So, everyone, you heard it here first. Take a naked poo. And do whatever you want with it. Naked poo. <laughs> not whatever you want. <laughs> listen, I want to vibe with Pooh when he's like, <laughs> listen, when he's like, I am short. And I'm proud, proud of that. that. I'm like, I, yes. Yes. I yes, have it man. saved on my Instagram saved page. Can I watch I it frequently? Is to be Proud of that. Proud of that. I want to bend over and be like, oops, I ripped it. During during yoga, I ripped my back open. (laughs) Excellent. Poo is 
who is a middle-aged woman coming to terms with herself? I just, <laughs> let's talk about body positivity. <laughs> Pooh Bear is ahead of the game. <laughs> it's like, I'm round, I'm proud, and I don't have any pants on. <laughs> and give me the honey. <laughs> give me that honey, honey. <laughs> but back to Peter Rabbit. People, Similar, but different. <laughs> also, no pants. <laughs> they don't use pants in, in, on animals. No, we'll regularly. actually talk about that in a little bit. I mean, Mickey um, Mouse does pants, but not a shirt. Oh yeah, he's topless. <laughs> well, unless he's wearing like everybody the loves jobs. a topless mouse. <laughs> he might be in like a black turtleneck. Who knows? He's crazy. <laughs> um, but people love this merchandise. They're like, oh my god, like. This is amazing. Things made for kids. This is awesome. <laughs> and so did the publisher. This was a very profitable venture that no one else was doing. And, of course, all this business that she's doing, it means she's pretty much in constant contact with the youngest brother, Sweet Norman. They had a lot in common. They were kind of shy. Um, they liked to read. They were kind of awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and they became really close with each other. They mainly wrote letters back and forth constantly. Um, but they would occasionally go and visit each other at their respective family homes because <laughs> she lived with her parents and he lived with his mother and sister. <laughs> and they would just kind of get lost in each other's ideas for more children's books. In fact, the tale of two bad mice is basically the brainchild of their close relationship. So one time when she's visiting him, he is showing her this incredible dollhouse that he had built. And they're looking at the dollhouse and she's complimenting it. And she was like, oh, like, you know, what if two mice came in and like they saw all this cute little food and they were like, oh, my gosh, it's not real food. And they got mad and they trashed the place, you know, and he's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. And then maybe they would throw cake onto the ceiling and swing from the chandeliers. And she's like, ah! <laughs> and <laughs> And they're basically, like, coming up with this little story. It's very cute. It's very romantic. And, you know, thankfully, at the end of the day, very profitable. The Tale of Two Bad Mice was a bestseller. <laughs> and I love when quirky people find one another. Isn't it the best? It's really adorable. It's because they're, like, you're so, like, counterculture. I know. And it just, like, they just vibed so well with each other mm. because I learned like I this. Do with Pooh Bear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did learn this from your brother Eric when I tried to push him and my ex boyfriend Alec to be friends, and I was like, "Hey, I was like, look, you're nerds. It'll be great." And Eric goes, "Katie, we're different types of nerds." He was like, "I am a you know whatever he is like a Renaissance not not even a Renaissance Lord of the Rings he's like, like I'm Doctor a Lord who. he goes I'm a doctor that was the thing he said I'm a Doctor who, who nerd and he is a Zelda nerd we're different I'm sure Eric likes Zelda and oh, yeah. Alec mm -hmm. likes Doctor Who it's very but different when it's your main shit it's different it, it hits different as the kids <laughs> like to say <laughs> it, 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 as the kids <laughs> as the TikTokers likes to say this it podcast hits just different. aged <laughs> aged up. Age up. We leveled up. <laughs> Player ready one. <laughs> Said that backwards. <laughs> oh my God. But in 1905. <laughs> good, good, good. Norman and Beatrix's relationship had turned romantic, and Norman proposed to Beatrix in a letter but show me the ring <laughs> show me that ring baby what was it of her own um, illustration <laughs> i wish this is a pure 
rabbit fur ring. <laughs> she <laughs> <laughs> disgusting. She of course says yes. She said yes immediately. It's so exciting. She's so happy. Norman's family is thrilled, especially <laughs> his sister. She and Beatrix were super close. And, like, she would be like, this is my sister Beatrix. Like, she loved her. This was not just one person, but a whole group of people who loved Beatrix for who she was. It was amazing. And his nieces and nephews called her Auntie B. <gasps> so cute. You mean, like, Aunt Paige? Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it hits different. It hits different <laughs> with her. Um, but when she tells her parents the good news, they don't like it they're actually kind of pissed why because they said oh, beatrix this is a man in trade he works like this is disgusting which is like <laughs> shut the fuck up you literally are second generation wealth your parents are norman like you're not that far removed like, <laughs> like shut past up i him. hate them <laughs> they're um so but beatrix couldn't care less she was 39 had a booming career this new warm welcoming family unlike hers and a man who loved her and understood her happiness however would only last about one month three weeks after their engagement norman was diagnosed with leukemia and died a week later no one month after they are engaged, he is dead. Doesn't that break your fucking heart? I don't even understand that. I know. How do you not catch blood cancer till a month before you're gone? I, I, I just don't. I don't understand. And I feel like that's really old to get leukemia. It, leukemia is like a child's thing, right? I have no idea. I mean, Mandy Moore had it. And how old was she in high school? Um, I feel like... <laughs> Mandy and Moore. by Mandy Moore, I mean. You mean a walk the, to remember. Walk to remember. <laughs> That's not what Mandy, Mandy Moore is alive and well. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's be clear. You heard it here last. Mandy Moore is alive and well. <laughs> I think, no, I think it's something like leukemia is more common in when you're young. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Maybe he, like, did have it and... I, he just didn't, just know. didn't know. Yeah, I don't know. Late diagnosis, 30. But, I mean, I'm sure people in their 30s get blood cancer. Oh, like yeah. You, of course. Yeah. But I think he was like 37. Oh, my gosh. No. And just the dreams of her perfect life suddenly washed away in this gray puddle. She was just, she was devastated. But she kept his memory alive by wearing that engagement ring for the rest of her life on her <sighs> right hand. She also, not her left hand? Not her left hand. <laughs> oh, well, she was never married. Okay. No, she was eventually later. We'll get to it. Okay, but not she with She did this marry guy. again, but not with this Oh, guy. but then she still wore the ring? Yeah. Her whole life. Even with her second, or second, or first husband. Break out the rumors. <laughs> get um, <laughs> um, But she decided that this wasn't going to stop her from living her own life separate from her god-awful parents. She's like, I still need to get away from them. So, um, and... She finally got the news that her favorite little property in the charming village of Sari in Western England's lake region was for sale. And she hopped on it. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was originally meant to be the home that she would share with Norman. That was like her dream for it. Of course, he died. Um, but she went on with the sale anyways. And Hilltop Farm was hers. 
this home and the town of Sari were a great source of inspiration for her. And you can literally see it in her drawings. Sometimes people's houses or their shops would grace the pages of her books. Like, they're literally doing a tour of her house. And they're like, this is the windowsill where, like, you know, the squirrel is trying to, like, you know, comb the gum out of the baby squirrel's fur or whatever you know it's, it's like, like you can see that it was their you house can see that it's there and it's amazing and it's really exciting it would be like if you actually lived on privet drive like your home or your shop is a part of an iconic piece of british children's literature um and her career went on classic tales such as the tale of mrs tigglywinkle <laughs> The Tale of Pie and the Patty Pan, <laughs> The Tale of Jeremy Fisher, and The Tale of Jemima Puddle Duck, <laughs> among many more silly animal-based books. Uh, they were published to great success. Um, but apparently, though, when The Tale of Tom Kitten was being produced, the new brother uh, who took over her account took great offense at a scene where all the kittens take their clothes off. He's like, Beatrix, we can't have this. And she goes... They're kittens. If I hadn't drawn them with clothes on in the first place, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Peter Rabbit doesn't have pants. This is a <laughs> null and void conversation. <laughs> Shut up. No <laughs> pants for us. But animals and clothing did kind of become like her signature. <laughs> and I do have a particular fondness for Jemima Puddle Duck because she is wearing a little bonnet like the geese in Aristocats. And I have to imagine they're based off of her. You, they can't not be. They I can't not like be. in literature is now based off of her. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And media. All of it. Um, and it's cool, too, because I didn't realize before that, like, she did write some original stories, but a lot of them are, like, retellings of classic stories. So she's, like, Grimm's fairy tale, but sweet. Yeah, exactly. You know, and she would do, like, you know, the, the country mouse and the city mouse, but, like, her own version. Like, the Taylor of Gloucester was a famous story, but it was of a real tailor who has, like, little, like, elves helping him or whatever. And she's like, but what if it were mice? <laughs> Wouldn't that be cute? Wouldn't it be cute if these were all woodland creatures? <laughs> I mean, Disney didn't bite off you at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, she is publishing about two books a year, sometimes three, which is insane, especially because, again, she's writing and illustrating all of them. Um, and after her 19th book, <laughs> The Tale of Pigling Bland, in 1913, the writing slows down a bit. She had, for years, been spending more and more time at Hilltop Farm. She had a caretaker for the property, but she was finding a lot of enjoyment in helping out with the manual labor, um, fixing things around the property, gardening, breeding sheep, raising award-winning pigs, <laughs> and just working with her hands and getting some a little pig. dirty. Exactly. She had a lot of some pigs. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, infuriated her parents. They're like, a single woman getting dirty alone on a farm? Gross. <laughs> then she was making so much money from her book, she bought an adjoining farm, Castle Farm. And since she now had two properties, she was starting to collaborate and spend even more time with a man named William Helis. They got along really well, and they shared a vision for a simple country life and hard work. And in 1912, William proposed and Beatrix accepted. 
Her parents were aghast. Of course. <laughs> a book publisher was pretty bad, but a countryman? <laughs> uh, he was really more of a real estate solicitor. Like, he was kind of in charge of all the real estate around this area. Um, but all they saw was, like, the farmer in Tim. They they thought they were being punked, basically. <laughs> um, but honestly, who the fuck cares what they Where's think? Where's <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Beatrix and William were married on October 15th, 1913, Beatrix was 47, William was 42, and she wore a tweed suit. <laughs> so British. I'm vomiting. <laughs> Ew. Um, also, again, I don't think there was anyone that she could have married that would have made her parents happy. Because um, poor Bertram, we haven't heard from him in a while. He fell in love with a wine merchant's daughter, but since he knew his parents would not approve, he lived a double life. He kept his wife and his actual job of being a farmer and a landscape painter a secret from his parents forever. Okay, they never like knew. That are a problem. <laughs> like, don't make us all look bad because you can't bring it out. I, know. Be- I think Beatrix knew about it, I think, you know, but the parents never knew. He's living a double life, which also, like, I think he was mainly protecting his wife. Be like, you don't even want to meet my parents, <laughs> which is good on you. Um, like Emily Gilmore, no, exactly. Not for you. <laughs> but probably a good call because apparently it was a very happy marriage, and oh, it's and it seems like Beatrix had a happy marriage as well. Um, her last major work, Pigling Bland, was again, as I said before, published in 1913, and it was a tale of a pig finding another pig and then running off and getting married. So maybe it had a little something to do with this. Who knows? Maybe a little. <laughs> I don't um, know why she would call herself as a pig, you psycho. <laughs> like, <laughs> ah, come on. Animal. You're a squirrel for sure. And even though she did write some more things up until 1930, she was really more focused on life at the farm. In fact, the only reason she started publishing again a few years later after Pigling Bland was because one of the Warren kids had stolen a bunch of money from the company and was arrested for it. The last brother who was existing, who wasn't dead or in jail, basically went to Beatrix and he was like, I'm so sorry to put you in this position, but he was like, I need you to write another book. So that we can sell it and save the company because he's like, I didn't know my brother has all these debts and the loans are piling up. He's like, I am so sorry to do this, but can you do another book? So she published Apley Dapley's Nursery Rhymes very quickly to save the family that she almost married into and that she still loved dearly from financial ruin. I mean, this would have ruined, this would have destroyed a lot of lives, like the folding of this company. Um, and it kind of sucks because she was like, I was a little suspicious of it for a while because my royalty checks were a little delayed more <laughs> and more every week. <laughs> um, but she helped them out. She saved the company. But she did make the smart move of going to London. She was like, I'm just going to take my original artwork back. You know, I just want to make sure that it's uh, in my house and not in this shamble this company that's in shambles right exactly oh my gosh um but yeah so i mean thankfully she did because we still have them today 
Um, but other than saving companies, she was also throwing her support behind some other ventures she thought were good for society. She loved the Girl Guides, which we learned in our Queen Elizabeth episode were basically the Girl Scouts in London. Yeah. Um, it was just really anything to encourage young women to get outside. It was just, it was just a win in her book. Um, she would let them camp out on her properties and she would bring them tea and blankets and hang out with them by the bonfire. It was very cute. Um, she would also make paths on her property so people could walk right through, um, which in- <laughs> very not Carol King, um, <laughs> encouraging people to get outside more. Of course, it meant tourists would sometimes come to visit her, um, which, you know, in her older age, she did get a little more crotchety. Uh, but apparently she really liked when tourists from America came to visit. She found it really novel. Um, <laughs> We're very cute. Yeah. She even wrote <laughs> about a little girl from the Bronx. And she said, she was darling, but I wish to never hear that accent again. Was her name Jenny? <laughs> I hope so. Was she Jenny from the block of Bronx? I that love That was it. J-Lo. <laughs> um, she was also really concerned with health care in the area. The village was really far away from any major hospitals or doctor's offices, so she petitioned to have a district nurse assigned to their area, especially to help assist women in childbirth. She was like, look. Women are dying at really high rates from childbirth, and I think this is preventable. <laughs> so after a lot of work and hoop jumping and letters to people in the government, they did eventually assign a nurse to the area, and Beatrix gave her a small cottage to live on, to live in on her property, and she gave her a bike so she could get around easily, and eventually a car. Like, she was taking care of this nurse. It was really nice. <laughs> but her main contribution during the later years of her life would be conservationism. She was really worried about the fate of these gorgeous green areas in the lake region of England. And uh, she was especially nervous because property developers had their eyes on it. And they wanted to buy this lake region and make it into another suburban areas full of houses or vacation homes exclusively for the uber wealthy. And she was like, I don't want the people who live here to be driven out because of these developers. Yeah, and I also she Teddy Roosevelt, the property. So every time a property would come up for sale, Beatrix would snatch it up. Cause again, her husband is like the real estate guy in the area. So he knows before and she's anybody got else and she's got the money. So she is buying it up before the developers to save it from people who would tear up the land or drive the prices up so high that the people who live in the area can't afford to live there anymore. She's basically, like, being a one-woman army against gentrification. <laughs> She's, like, honestly, for somebody who grew up so wealthy, this is shocking. She's, She's very – she's woke. <laughs> She's her spotter. She used a term. She's super woke. She <laughs> used a term. Um, oh, so sometimes she would turn them into, you know – uses for the public she was like let's turn it into a museum or an art gallery or a tea room so that people coming to visit the town can have a rest while walking around like let's use this as property for people who live here and people who want to visit um and she would also buy homesteads that were in disrepair and she would bring them back to life making them working properties again so that if you were to buy it like you could have a living making money off of this like farming area And when she was in the process of refurbishing some of these homes, she would try and stick to the style of the town. And she would buy locally made furniture for each home, encouraging the local economy even more. 
Um, I know, like, it kind of sounds like she's like a house-flipping monster, um, but she's not, I promise. As we mentioned earlier, she had been a prominent sheep herder. I think I mentioned it very quickly. Um, for many years, especially sheep herder, yeah, a sheep herder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she was specializing in the preservation of the native Herdwick sheep, which she won awards for some sheep. Um, but it wasn't until 1942 when she was officially recognized for her contribution, and she became the first woman elected to the president to be the president of the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association. <laughs> Very exciting. It's very British. <laughs> but unfortunately, poor Beatrix would not live long enough to actually take office. Oh. Before her inauguration. <laughs> Little B. She became ill and passed away from complications of pneumonia and heart disease on December 22nd, 1943, at the age of 77. Her husband, William, followed 20 months after they had been happily married for 30 years. Oh. Per her request, there was no fuss made about her death. She requested no public funeral, nor even a headstone. Her ashes were scattered in a secret place hidden in the many hills of the Lake District. But you can find Beatrix everywhere. Children around the world are still enjoying her books today. Her stories have also been made into ballets and films and TV shows and projects, just everything. Her own life is depicted in the film Ms. Potter. Um, and it's all about the romance between Beatrix and Norman. And it stars Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor as the star-crossed couple. Overall, she wrote 23 books until 2016 during the 100th anniversary celebration of her birth when a historian found one more little story she had written called Kitty and Boots. <laughs> <laughs> but even more so than any book she leaves us with, um, she leaves us with a legacy based in environmentalism and conservationism. All of that property that she had been buying up was donated to the National Trust to make sure the land stayed pristine and it served and to serve the families that lived there. That land and some other areas combined to make the Lake District National Park, which Beatrix would have been very proud of. And the people of the Lake District still benefit from her life via the saved land, and the many tourists who frequent the area for Beatrix Potter pilgrimages. And of course, all of them stop at Hilltop Farm, which can still be visited today and acts as kind of a museum to her. Even though Beatrix was a classic English countrywoman at heart, we can't ignore her forward thinking. She was way ahead of her time when it came to not only the children's book industry, but the importance of preserving our environment and frankly, the happiness of children. (laughs) She once said, if I have done anything, even a little, to help small children enjoy honest, simple pleasures, I have done a bit of good. And that's the story of Beatrix Potter. I love that so much. I didn't know how cool she was. I know. For sure. I just, I remember hearing about her years ago and I was like, Wow, I had literally never thought twice about who wrote Peter Rabbit. I yeah. just didn't think about it. And just, I think that she's fascinating. It's funny, too, because people do speak her name with such reverence that it's like I always kind of knew there's something special about her, but yeah. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Well, that's it. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. I'm going to pee before Me we too. do this. So let's talk about these women together in a little section we like to call Just the Two of Us. 
Okay. <laughs> Unbelievable. I think I want to start with talking about children. Yes. Um, because they were both really servicing children with their work, especially Rita in her later years. Mm-hmm. And Beatrix throughout like a lot of her career. And I think that people don't take that seriously. No, they don't. I don't think that they think a lot about children as the sponges that they are. <laughs> you know, kids are absorbing everything. Or like as the consumers that they can can draw in. Yeah, exactly. It's like you talk about Rita Moreno and like all of these Latinx kids who are like, oh, I would love to like buy more movies and participate in more stuff that like is related to me. You yeah. know, like think about the success of Encanto that we're in right now, which is like there's like this underserved market that's like, I've been waiting for this forever. And like the, the fact that it's like na- the soundtrack has now beat out every other Disney soundtrack yeah. of all time. Yeah, it's incredible. And I just think that both of these women were so good at reaching children that feel maybe as outsiders because they were outsiders themselves. You know, I think about like, Rita being this girl from Puerto Rico who is in this really kind of dangerous area of New York City growing up and she is being like racially othered in you know this very intense way and I also kind of feel like Beatrix always felt different but in a more quiet way like I think she would be like neuro neuro atypical or whatever the phrasing is yeah and i think because of that she was like socioeconomically othered Mm -hmm. like she was born into an old money family not even though like i think two generations her parents thought they were old money but they they weren't they were pretending to be old money (laughs) so she's born into a wealthy community and you can act one way in Mm -hmm. britain in the late 1800s like this is the that's the prime victorian era like literally queen victoria is the queen yeah well and i think that you can need escaping especially as a child in different ways and i think that dancing and art you know i mean the dancing is a form of art Mm -hmm. but they were both kind of escapes for these kids you know i think rita found dancing as her way out of her situation and she's like I can get out and away from this and make my life better with this and I think for Beatrix it was just this very quiet like I just need to get out of this fucking house and obviously I'm not allowed to leave without a chaperone so I'm just going to escape in my world of art and animals and mushrooms. And because of both of their escapes, they became these amazing influences. Like, as you said, Rita was obviously such an influence for all the Latinx people growing up in the United States and surrounding area to be like, oh, that's what I can do. But also, like, as we mentioned, and, like, I looked it up as we were going, Dr. Doolittle was published after this. Lord of the Rings was published after this. Like, um jk rowling like literally her main character's last name is potter yeah like there is it's such a british like so many things like alice in wonderland focuses around mushrooms right like there's so many like there's so many things that she like put in and pooh bear doesn't have pants (laughs) i I think there are so many things that once you do it 
once other people are like oh that's the way you do a children's book yeah yeah and everybody's like okay well that's the way you do it then exactly and that's what she (laughs) was doing without knowing it oh it's exactly what she was doing and it's so funny because you have these women who are we think of today as like such powerhouses and they were so creative and so good but I think that they did not feel a lot of power in their positions. They were constantly wanting more control over their careers, you know? I mean, Beatrix and Rita were constantly being told to get back in their space, you know? It's like, no, we don't want to book on mushrooms. What are you, lunatic? Like, no. (laughs) Like, you know, like, we don't want your book about bunnies and rabbits. Which, like, good ask. (laughs) Like, are you a lunatic? (laughs) And then you have Rita being put into, like, these ethnic roles and even after they reach great success it's kind of like hmm, that that's kind of it like they're not asked to do more like you know it's like people are still expecting them to go back in kind of their place i don't know if i mean kind of seems like beatrix just wanted to be a farmer but mm-hmm. <laughs> but rita wanted to do more and it felt like people were just constantly telling her like no mm-hmm. which is really frustrating it was frustrating and i think that both of them had this idea that they wanted a say in what yeah. they were doing. Like Beatrix is like, no, I want to pick the paper. I want to pick the color. I want to do this. And, and Rita was like, you're not going to cast me like that. I'm not going to speak in that accent anymore. I'm not going to do mm-hmm. X, Y, Z. When I portray a woman of my heritage, I'm going to do it in a respectful manner. Mm-hmm. And yes, we have big, because now she plays like this big, bold grandma. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> Netflix series. But it's like, yes, I am going to play that, but I'm going to play it in the way in which it's respectful and honest to the mm-hmm. families of my culture. Yeah. Not the way that you're telling me to act it. Yeah, exactly. It's well, amazing. And it is amazing because we need people like that to be standing up even before they're being listened to mm-hmm. because at least like Rita Moreno was like, yeah, I did have to play those roles to like make a living, but like you better believe I was thinking about it. So you can't tell me that everyone was okay with this representation when she was like, when I was doing it and I wasn't okay with it. Right. You know, which I think is really important. People knew. You can't tell me that people didn't know that, like, shit was fucked up. Um, You know, and I just, I don't know, I kind of felt like they were just, no matter how successful they got, like, men weren't really taking them seriously, which really bugged me. It is. It's frustrating. And also because they're, like, over 100 years apart. Yeah. You know, and like women are still dealing with the same shit. <laughs> yeah, it's like when Beatrix Potter was passing away is exactly when Rita Moreno was being born. Yeah, and it's like they just from one to another, like you do see the progression of women's rights within their stories. Yeah, absolutely, in, in a very real way. And I, I find that at the end of their lives, when they had found personal success and personal peace was when they were like, no, I'm going to throw my weight behind something I care about. How cool is that? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think you put it perfectly when it's like a personal piece, like Mm. they no longer felt like they had to prove anything in their maybe like exact careers, you know? Yeah. Like they're like, no, like I did my big thing. I'm at at the peak. I did it. I did what I sought out to do. So, yeah, now I'm going to help the world become a better place so that we don't have to have people like me going through what they did. Right. (laughs) You know? And I don't know. I just think that um, 
Yeah, I think Beatrix Potter is a person that a lot of kids, especially nowadays, when we are learning more about um, kids that are just different and they learn differently and they experience the world differently. If I were a kid like that, I would find a lot of inspiration in Beatrix Potter, who like, Mm. I think homeschooling can be a thing that is looked down upon and you think people are weird if they enjoy homeschooling. Right. But regular school is not for all kids. And I think you can kind of look at Beatrix and be like, oh, I feel the same way about school. You know, like I do thrive by myself and I am good at like just self learning and things like that. And it's okay that I don't want to go to school. It's been so interesting watching the kids that do and don't thrive on virtual education. Oh, interesting. I've just had such, I think all teachers have had such an interesting window into the way that children learn in the past few years. Because there's been kids that have shut down like that and kids that have thrived. Yeah. And I think Beatrix is a great example of somebody who would have thrived being able to have her own agenda. Like, yeah. I get to wake up in the morning and do it the way I want to do it. Yep. And then some kids really need that structure. Yeah. And again, it's not about, you know. Intelligence. Intelligence. It's about respecting that kids learn differently. Mm. Kids need different role models. And that's okay. And, and that's what they got in these two women. They did. They got very different role models, mm. very different visions of, Yeah. How you can be successful and how you can be a better person. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I love that. Are you ready to toast? I am ready to toast. Okay. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I don't think that this toast is possible for all people, but I think that it is amazing when it happens. For people who can be positive in spite of, like, the shit they've been drugged <laughs> through yeah. always amazes me. And I think that even watching her interviews, watching Rita's documentaries, I just, I never saw her break. Yeah. Like, I saw her get upset, but she never lost that, like, spark. Yeah. And for people who can hold that positivity, like, mm. cheers to you because yeah. it's amazing. It's hard to do. It cheers. is. So Cheers. <laughs> I am going to toast women who are different and embrace it. It just seems like Beatrix lived her life in a way where she never had to change for anyone. Mm. She's like, I'm weird. I like animals. I like being on my own. I like sheep. (laughs) And I think it's really admirable that in an age where she was supposed to marry wealthy, be a society lady, she just never compromised on that. Mm. She was in love once. Guy died, unfortunately. And she didn't just find another guy that would be like, okay. Like, she found a guy that she could live her life with. And I also think that if she hadn't found William, she would have been just fine. Yeah. She was living her life the best way that she could. And I think mm-hmm. that's amazing. So cheers. <laughs> no Marlon Brandos. Yes, no Marlon Brandos. Mm. All right. To finish out the episode, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So I told you this already when we were moving our fabulous in-laws mm-hmm. <laughs> into the new house. Um, but uh, producer and I watched the first, like, several episodes of Afterlife. Mm. And it is very Rick- Ricky Gervais. So, like, there's a lot of foul language. There's a lot of, like, really intense topics that, like, are definite trigger warnings. But it's also 
really nice. Yeah. Like watching, you know, he's playing a main character who recently lost his wife that he was just obsessed with. Yeah. And it's him trying to go through his life without his partner. And he's within the first six months of mm. her passing. And it is just lovely because I, I think one of the things that, you know, producer and I really talked about while we were watching the show is like, you know, he's supposed to be like in his 40s, 50s and lost a spouse. And maybe that's not going to happen to us. But one day at one time, one of us is going to be alone without the other. And it's so yeah. beautiful to watch that. It really makes you appreciate your partner in a really mm. real way. Oh, and so it's nice. just a because it is a hard show to watch. Yeah. It's funny. It's uncomfortable. It's <laughs> triggering. But it's um it's really nice to be like, oh, I didn't realize those little things you do and how important they are to me. Yeah. So it's a really nice Aww. show. That's so sweet. So Afterlife is great as long as it's not going to really make you. Like wreck your life. Very sad. <laughs> because it could also really wreck your life. So huge, huge warning yeah. for um, suicide. Huge, huge warning for drug use. Mm -hmm. Huge warning for people who lost somebody important to them. And huge warning for people who hate their job. So. Ah, there we go. <laughs> so don't watch it. <laughs> Liking in pop culture. Okay. Speaking of Gloria's sister-in-law, who we just <laughs> moved into her new house, um, I was hanging out with her maybe like two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and I told her about this new app that I have downloaded. Okay. So I've been trying to make my phone work better for me because it's like I feel like we always want to be off our phones, off the phone, our phones, mm -hmm. and I kind of ignored the fact that like they can actually be useful. So I downloaded this app called Google Keep. A few weeks ago. It is amazing. What does it do? It is a note making app, like a list making app, but you make all these lists and they kind of like shrink back so you can see them all. They almost look like post-it notes on the page and you can make them all different colors. They have cute backgrounds for other things. And that way, like when I look at it at the homepage and then you can like click on it and like, obviously like all you see is the list, bigger, yeah. but everything has its place. So it's like, I have a list for like things I need to get at target. I have like things that I keep forgetting. I need to get at the grocery store, like coffee or creamer cocktail or Ziploc bags, cocktail <laughs> ingredients. I have things I need to do for the podcast. Like every week, like I check off like cocktail post, episode post, you know, whatever. And then like at the end of the week, I just uncheck them all and they come back up. Cause I need to do that shit every week. Right. And it's like things for work, things for personal life, but they're all, they're unique colors, so they're just always there. And then when I think about something, it's like, I've been thinking for weeks, like, I need to get light bulbs. I need to get light bulbs. And I put it on the list. Keep forgetting. And then it's there. And then it's on my phone. Because I'm a person who I love to write things down. But then I write things down in a whole bunch of other places. And, and where I, is it? I don't know where it is. Right. <laughs> but I told um, Olivia about this app, and she texted me the other day. She goes, I love it. Like, <laughs> so I was really happy to share the words. I'm going to share the word with you. And it's great, too, because when you are on your – it's linked to your Gmail account because Ooh. it's through Google. So when you're on your email, you can choose to have it pop up on the side. So if you're on your computer doing work and you want to make sure you're getting all your work stuff done, the checklist is right there. It's amazing. It's been a life changer, That's honestly. And I also have been putting 
Like I'll make a grocery list and I'll meal plan and I'll be like, well, tonight I want to make this, 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 and this, you know, and I'll put the things that I have like scheduled, you know, time and food for, and then I'll check them off throughout the week. So I don't have to think about what we, what meals we Already have did. stuff for, yeah. you know, and I'll be like, oh, okay, cool. So we made those three meals. So now all we have left is like the chicken pot pie and the, you know, gnocchi, you know, it's just, it's wonderful. It has truly changed my life. Google keep. <laughs> good advice. Very good advice. And it's just cute. It's a really beautiful app, I like that. which I think is important. Um, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for listening. We love you. Um, we want you to find us everywhere. Um, we're on Instagram and Facebook and just wherever. Uh, but mostly we want you to leave, we want you to leave us a review on Apple podcasts. If you can, that would be the most helpful, um, and lovely. Um, yeah. And I think that's it. It is. That's the whole night. That's the whole night. We did it. Unless you're a patron and then you can hang around and find our little bonus app. Yeah. So hang out if you're a patron. Um, but if you're not and you want to join, find us on (laughs) patreon.com. Um, but mostly we want you to never forget that well-behaved women, rarely pick their teeth in public <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> Which i definitely do really i think so i, I think, think i do since covid i'm like scared to like publicly put, put my fingers mouth. anywhere near my yeah, mouth yeah, 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 yeah. um but they also really make history goodbye, goodbye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye